Thanks for joining us, everyone, for another episode of Well Said. We have with us here today, Luke Bunting, who fin is finishing up his final year at Georgetown Law, where he has focused on constitutional and election law. At Georgetown, Luke is the editor-in-chief of Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy. He's the co-president of the Conservative and Libertarian Student Association and the director of communications for the Federalist Society. So I'll first say it's a good sign that these organizations exist um, on Georgetown's campus and that Luke was able to participate them, participate in them freely and, you know, and willingly. Um, but this has not stopped Georgetown from being at the center of much of the controversies regarding free speech and intellectual diversity on campus. In light of everything that has recently happened with Yale Law School's Federalist Society event being shut down after an attempt at open debate between opposing sides, Rutgers Student Bar Association attempting to compel uh, support for the critical race theory movement by mandating all clubs hold events on CRT in order to receive funding, and with Georgetown Law's inability to figure out how to embolden intellectual diversity amongst its faculty when it caved to the pressure of the woke mob regarding Ela Shapiro's tweet. So it starts to beg the question of what's going on in law schools. Most of the public probably has no idea that there is a requirement of probably about only one class on the US Constitution at most law schools. That's just one semester, less than four months. So this is probably something that most people don't realize. I think there's a lot of other things about law school that we also don't know. And I, and I really wanted to take an opportunity to discuss with a current law student who has kind of seen and been writing about all of the issues going on on campuses across the country and on his own campus and get a real sense here that we can communicate to our listeners about what is going on in law schools. Is, you know, is neutrality still the goal? And um, is it all a lost cause? What are we producing with all of the money that people are putting into these programs? Um, so Luke, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it has been uh, very difficult to find a law student who's willing to even go on camera without me like smearing out their face or giving you like some sort of voice, you know, <laughs> over something that actually have you on on the program and you're not afraid of any consequences. So thanks for joining. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited <laughs> to chat through through all of this. As you mentioned, there's quite a lot going on. Well, I'm, I guess three years in and I don't think I have the answer to what's going on on law school campuses, <laughs> but I'll, I'll do my best to illuminate what I've seen at least. Yeah, maybe we can at least start scratching the surface because I'm sure many people are curious, especially what we've been seeing going on in the news and everything. But can you first, let's start off with kind of why was it so hard for me to find someone to be on this podcast on this episode just to shed, I, I even said, I want to just shed light on what's going on in law schools. I don't actually want to sit here and condemn any specific universities over and over again or, or go on record and saying, you are like a conservative or you are a liberal. I just wanted to shed light on this, but it was still very hard um, to find someone who was willing to sit down with me. Why is that? Uh, I think two reasons. I think a lot of current students, as you've mentioned, the campuses are kind of hostile environments right now. And so if you're a current student, you want to keep your head down, just get to graduation, don't want to cause waves. Uh, because if you speak out, you can create a lot of backlash from fellow students, from administrators, from teachers who you need to rely on for your grades uh, that matter quite a lot at law school. So I think that's one aspect. And then the other is you have law firms, you have uh, government jobs. A lot of these places now have kind of, there's been institutional capture by, I would argue, uh, yeah. the left or kind of anti-free speech uh, organizations or movements. And I think there's a fear that if you speak out, you're not gonna be able to find employment, which is pretty scary after you've invested three years, all that stress, 
uh, plus all the money for law school. So I think those are kind of the two reasons why you have law students and then even young lawyers not wanting to speak out about what's been going on on campuses. Yeah, and that's interesting to me because, you know, especially conservative students are afraid they won't be able to find employment. Um, but it doesn't seem like liberal students are afraid of this or far left progressive kind of like woke mob type students. You know, they're the ones who are going on record, putting themselves on videos, cussing out speakers, protesting, and they don't really seem too concerned that they're not going to be able to find a job. And I was actually having a conversation with um, someone who's, who's a, a fellow, uh, a good friend um, and just graduated law school as well. And she mentioned to me that uh, you know, it seems that on the, when it comes to judges and, and clerkships and kind of like the different jobs you're, you're looking for right out of law school, um, a lot of the more left-leaning judges will be less inclined. Obviously, they're not going to hire conservatives. If you're like openly conservative, it's very difficult to get hired in those offices. But if you are on the right, or sorry, if you're a left-leaning individual and you're on and you're looking kind of for a job and maybe a more conservative office, it's actually almost encouraged, or you know, they're they're a lot more likely to hire folks from the left in conservative offices. Um, they're not as as selective in that way. They're more interested in looking at like the credentialing, right? Uh, and this is kind of what she told me, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this too. If this is something that you've seen across the board as well. Yeah, it, it, your friend might be more, uh, have more knowledge about the clerkship process and opportunities than I do. But for, I think my understanding is that you have a lot of judges who uh, are looking, and most of my knowledge base is about kind of Federalist Society or conservative appointed judges. They will frequently hire uh, opposing viewpoint clerks, somebody to come in and really challenge them to make sure they're getting to the right answer. I've spoken to some judges who do that, and they really value that process. I'm not aware of what that is like on for a lot of the Democrat appointed judges in the federal system. Um, I would hope that they they do that as well to make sure that they're getting to the right result. But yeah, it, it's I, I think that should be encouraged at, at the very least is doing that. So if judges aren't doing that, I think that that is kind of an abdication of their job, their job and role of making sure they're getting the law right. Yeah, yeah, and I want to talk about um, some of the recent incidents because these are a lot of the schools that end up in the news um, with issues that are going on, like your your school, Georgetown, but then also Yale, um, and then we've seen other incidents going on across the country as well at top schools. Um, you know, I'm just what is what is going on with the students and their activism? Is this something that's completely normal uh, just across the board with law schools? Or is this something that's unique to? some of the more top tier, because these are the schools that are going to get the best placements. You know, these are the students that are going to get some of the best placements, whether it be um, clerkships or, or in, in law firms, they're, they're going to get some decent jobs out of this. So, you know, it doesn't seem like, again, there's not a real threat. There's not a real concern for, for at least those on the left. But I'm curious, has there been an increase on this kind of level of activism that you've seen on, on your campus or other campuses? I think from the start of my time at Georgetown, at least to now, it's probably gotten marginally worse, but it was pretty bad when I started law school in 2019. And I'd taken about six years, I guess four and a half actually at the time, four and a half years um, off from undergrad before I started law school. And I wasn't prepared for how much things had shifted just in that small amount of time. I think there's yeah, something- it was fast. Was, yeah, very <laughs> quick. And there's something that I heard referred to as the Trump bump which was a jump in law school or LSAT takers and a jump in law school admissions during the Trump administration, which a lot of people credited to uh, kind of the fervor around the actions that the Trump administration was taking. A lot of young activists leaning students wanting to then go to law school and 
fight back against whatever they thought he was doing. So I think that propelled a lot of more activist oriented students to law school. Then they got to the law school and now they're all pursuing, I, can, I can't tell you the amount of students I've met who want to go intern at the ACLU or for a variety of kind of progressive causes in DC. And I think you just, it, law schools generally are gonna attract those students. But I think in the past few years during the Trump administration, it really, you saw a bump in that. And then it's just propelled further and further uh, kind of toward, towards a place that I don't think is very conducive to free speech or academic rigor, not very accepting of opposing viewpoints. Uh, because as we've seen in the past few years, opposing viewpoints have been labeled problematic, something that shouldn't be engaged with. And unfortunately, you see that filtering into the classroom. You have teachers yeah. who try to bring in alternative viewpoints. Students fight the hypothetical or they say, no, we can't talk about that. That's wrong. That's morally wrong. I'm not even going to entertain that. Yeah. And I sit there in some classes thinking, what am I paying for? <laughs> we're not if I'm not going to if, if we're not going to engage with my viewpoint and you're not going to let me engage with yours. What am I paying for? Why am I sitting here? Uh, it, yeah, it, it's just it's been very bad, but it, it's been pretty bad, at least during my entire time here. Yeah, you mentioned that a lot of students are interested in interning for ACLU and all of these type of more kind of outgoing advocacy groups. Um, but is there, so even though they're more interested in kind of these, these political movement type groups, are they doing the work in, this, in the curriculum side of actually studying constitutional law, constitutional issues or public policy, or are they just studying the basics of kind of like procedure and then throwing themselves into these advocacy groups as well. And then there's not really, which leaves that gap, that like disconnect of actual understanding of, of the, the law and kind of the foundation of the law as well. Yeah, I, I think law school has an interesting structure where that first year, there's three years, the first year is pretty much a set curriculum for everybody. And so you'll cover the basics, property law, constitutional law is a required course during 1L at Georgetown, but it's not at every law school. So a lot of students will get that one semester of con law. And then for the second and third year, they have free reign to take pretty much whatever class they want. And so if you're more activist aligned, you're probably going to take a lot of classes and seminars that are critical of the government or, or really geared towards your specific interests. Uh, fortunately for me, I'm interested in constitutional law. So took a lot of classes on that, took election law classes, which I'm also interested in. Um, but I, I do think that there is a little bit of self-selection that goes on where people kind of select out of learning more about our system. And that can be problematic when these are the same people who are really wanting to change the system right. and they yeah. aren't really understanding what it currently is. They don't understand things like originalism outside of just what people on the left think it does. Uh, so I've had inf interesting conversations with my friends on the other side of the aisle who will say, well, you know, Scalia, he was just doing X. And I say, hey, wait, let me walk you through the 20 years of case law that was leading up to that and why, yeah. why, why he ended up there. And I think that's the kind of stuff you really miss out on in law school when it's not structured. And granted, that has pros and cons. You can really specialize. But it is, I think, worrisome when you have so, much, so many people who want to do activism work and they lack a lot of nuanced understanding about the actual structures as they exist. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do an episode on this topic <clears throat> was uh, also because of the fact that, you know, with, with the schools that we litigate against, uh, we, we, we obviously focus on policies that violate the free speech rights of our student members on those campuses. And when looking at these policies, sometimes I would say, oh my gosh, this is so blatantly unconstitutional. 
I don't understand how your, they all have, all these universities have legal counsel in, in house counsel. So I'm like, I don't understand how your lawyers signed off on these policies. And I thought maybe they just wrote the policies and didn't even run it by the lawyers. And I gave them the benefit of the doubt that way. And then I saw a briefing um, given by one of the council members on a campus that were in, uh, in the process of suing actually to the student government association, uh, you know, briefing them on what free speech is, right? And what, what, what's protected on campus. And this is a public campus, keep in mind. Um, and he, he goes as far to say that, you know, hate speech is protected by the constitution, but not really so much on this campus. And then he says that if you're talking about race or gender or sexuality, you're probably violating our anti-harassment policy. And, you know, as someone, this is a lawyer, and <laughs> saying these things. And it occurred to me, he says, wait, it might not be, an, it might not be the university is just not running things by their lawyers. It also might be a little bit of ignorance again, you know, with what's actually constitutionally allowed at some of the highest levels in the administrations of these universities. So that really concerns me because as you mentioned, not all universities are required um, or not all law schools require con law. And, uh, you know, and if they do, it, it is usually like in the first year and maybe one semester long. And to me, that's just a huge, a huge issue, a huge concern that we're getting all of these lawyers who are, you know, a lot and attorneys coming out, a lot of our potential future judges, um, future politicians, um, they're going to be, you know, counsel and legal advisors to very powerful people in some cases. And the concern is like they, they actually don't have a firm grasp for the most part, a lot of them won't on the constitution on the founding principles um, or on just kind of like basic history or history of the laws in this country. So I, I'd love to get your take on all of that, but also um, is there any solution that you would recommend for, or would you recommend a set you know, schedule of, of classes or some sort of mandated constitutional law throughout the three years or what would be the next step to kind of reconcile these issues? I, so I, I... I'm a big advocate for more constitutional law. I think it it's, would behoove every American to really get a deep dive into what the founding document contains, the case law around it. Uh, personally, I think at least the, what we have as constitutional law too, which focuses a lot on the 14th Amendment, due process, um, privileges or immunities clause, things like that, equal protection. Those are really important and undergird a lot of kind of the social conversations we're, we're having about social policy right now. So I think that would be really helpful to require or at least integrate more into that 1L course. Mm. You know, I think there is, I'm almost hesitant though, to recommend and mandate more constitutional law being taught at the law school, if only for the reason that I do not trust the teaching of it in a lot of these situations. Uh, I think you have, it, it, this is a common kind of something you touched on that's a common critique I hear from practicing lawyers, which is that law school does not prepare students to be lawyers. You learn a whole bunch of theory, and then you have to study for the bar, which is when you actually learn what you need to be a practicing lawyer. And then you go work at a firm and they train you up even more, and then you're a real lawyer. So I think you have law school is entirely theoretical, which means it's very easy for teachers to be only critical of the constitution, only critical of existing structures. It encourages these students who a lot of them are already activist leaning to come into school, and then they become even more critical. Um, which healthy skepticism, of course, is good, but I think it goes beyond that. Uh, and it, I just, something sticks out to me when mm. I was in an election law class and my professor uh, made a joke, but he, he was serious. He thought, he said, well, I know it's going to be unpopular, but I think this provision of the, I think the constitution might be wrong here. And everybody laughed. 
Um, and I was sitting there laughing too, thinking the least surprising thing you could say at law school is that the constitution is bad. That's, that, that is kind of the status quo wow. opinion yeah. of students and faculty is that it's bad, it should be thrown out, we should replace it wholesale uh, or just render it meaningless through judicial decree. And so, yeah, I, I, I was sitting there and that was kind of this light bulb mo moment for me when he said that. And I thought, no, you know, the most surprising thing you could stay, say in this classroom to law students right. is that the constitution is valid and legitimate and something we should treasure, even if it's imperfect. Yeah, no, that that's actually really interesting. And I think, I mean, I, so you mentioned that law school is highly theoretical, but I think that some schools are slightly different, right? We have ones that are very pragmatic and they focus, focus much more on procedure and that like they do focus very heavily on their students passing the bar. Like that's much more integrated into the curriculum versus other universities where it's like, and this tends to be kind of like the top tier university or college or sorry, law schools where they want to um, be more on theory and like focus more on theory because it's kind of expected that you on your own time are going to study for the bar and figure out procedure on your own because you're at kind of like this higher caliber, right? That's that kind of understanding. And I think that's really interesting and students should recognize this um, when they're applying for schools because a lot of the times they apply for the school just based on the name of the university um, or maybe, you know, the reputation and, and kind of, you know, how, how or in some cases, um, you know, just obviously the prestige and all of that. But, you know, in a lot of ways, students should also be looking at, hey, which one is not only going to help me pass the bar, but do I want to go to a more procedure focused you know, uh, law school or do I want to go something that really does do a deep dive into theory and challenge me in kind of like these more unique ways um, and just I think law students need to kind of ask themselves these questions and I'm not really sure that they necessarily are. And I'm curious what your process was when you selected Georgetown leading up to law school. Um, what was, you know, in addition, obviously for studying for the LSAT, I'm sure there's a lot more that goes through your mind in, in trying to make a decision there. Um, what was the process like and what attracted you to various uh, schools? Yeah, I, so I was fortunate, well, I guess I would consider myself fortunate that during undergrad, I was majoring in political science, which again, very theoretical. And so yeah. I knew even in undergrad, I would need to do externships, make connections on my own to secure employment after graduation. <laughs> and so I did that, it all worked out for me. Uh, and then I spent a few years working on Capitol Hill when I decided that I wanted to go to law school. And I wasn't under uh, any illusions really that it was probably going to be externships and my own networking that would benefit me the most, even at the law school level. So I think I came into it a pretty clear-eyed and I was already in DC. I wanted to do political election law. So DC seemed like the best place to remain. So that, that was really the big draw at Georgetown. There's a lot of support for externships, a lot of support for clinical programs uh, where you get to practice the law. So in a lot of ways, Georgetown is even better at that than a lot of its peers. And mm. it's DC, which is a fantastic legal market and gives right. you a lot of opportunities. But that was something I was really considering was I, I wanted to make sure I didn't go to a school, even if it was higher ranked, where I wasn't going to have, you know, you can go to the number one school if it's in the middle of nowhere, that's going to really limit your abilities to during the school year to network with practicing lawyers and to get the experiential aspect that I think is how you learn to be a lawyer. I think most of the practical skills of how to write briefs or memos, uh, I've learned from my externships and clerkships, not necessarily in any classroom. Yeah, and I'm curious, so with your undergrad preparation, so you said, um, I mean, obviously it's very encouraged 
by most law schools these days that you work, you say, take some time off between undergrad and grad to, to do some work and get some experience and understand um, how, how things operate um, for the most part. And I think what my concern is, and, and this might have a little bit to do with this, this knowledge gap of an understanding and appreciation um, for the constitution and just American history and how that feeds into the legal system and, and shapes it. Um, it's kind of like in, you majored in political science. Most, how many of these students in law school from your understanding are majoring in political science? Because I remember when I was an undergrad, that was kind of like the go-to major for people who wanted to go to law school. Is that still the case or has that shifted? Um, or are there like people coming from all sorts of places now to go to, go to law school? I think political science probably still has a pretty large contingent, but I've been so, almost surprised by how many people I've met who majored in something like computer science mm -hmm. and they wanna do uh, tech law uh, or yeah. majored in biology or hard sciences, things that I wouldn't have expected. Granted, Georgetown is the largest law school in the country, I believe. So I think that it's just a numbers game where you're going, I'm going to run into more people from those backgrounds. Right. I, I do think there's still a large contingent of political science people. And another thing where it becomes really apparent on a law school campus, and I had no, I just didn't even think about it until I got there, was what are called kind of the K through JD students, the people who go ah. straight through from law, from undergraduate straight into law school, compared to those who work for several years, um, I think me at four and a half, five years of work was almost at the high end. Um, hmm. But there's a real divide, I think, between the mindset of those two sets of students just in the sense that people who have had a few years out in the real world, as it's called, understand that school is not everything, that not every right. social battle and war needs to be fought on the campus. Um, and that that is that's just that, that life extends beyond the, the campus walls. And most of these things don't matter to the average American. Hmm. And so I think you do see a divide between a lot of the K through JD students um, or students who went through, straight through really have a different mindset when it comes to um, handling free speech issues or their views on just even what life is like for somebody in middle America. Uh, I've had conversations about, oh, well, we need this government program It'll, it'll and we should just declare it constitutional because it's so <laughs> necessary. And I said, wait, 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 I, you know, my family lives in rural Indiana. Let me tell you how that would play out and, and right. it's not going to be greeted with open arms. So I think that's, there's been a real disconnect there and law schools I know have encouraged people to take some time off, but I really think that it would do everybody uh, some good to encourage that even more. And for law schools right. to prioritize time off, working in a field, uh, even more so when reviewing applications. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. I, th I think you're absolutely right there. And I wanna pull on something you mentioned earlier with the tech majors and, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of social science majors now that there's been like this huge growth of social science degrees that are available, um, <clears throat> most of which are a ginormous waste of time and money. Um, but there's, that's kind of leads into the concern of like, look, there's not, most undergrads these days don't have like this common or kind of like a core curriculum that's mandated, right? They don't have like, you're not required to take the, the core like English history, math classes that you used to have to always take your freshman year. And I think what that's doing is in a lot of ways, again, creating this like giant knowledge gap of like, you could go your entire four years in undergrad without taking a single history class especially if you're like a computer science major or a sociology major. And then you go into law school and you have literally no foundational understanding of like basic American history or how the constitution was even like written or how it came about or the conversations that happened around it. So again, it comes back to, and then you only get that one semester maybe of con law and like uh, how much of that are you actually absorbing if it's brand new? 
And that's your first exposure to it by a professor who's probably telling you that it's not set in stone and that it can be changed easily and that it should be changed and that maybe we should have that conversation. And that's your first exposure. So I'm curious what your thoughts on how many professors and programs do you think take advantage of students' um, ignorance on, on the constitution when they come in? <clears throat> and how much preparation is there really um, you know, in the LSAT for any of this? Regarding the LSAT, there's no preparation. Okay. The, the LSAT is uh, it's a very strange test of logic games and reading comprehension, nothing related to the law. Uh, so yeah, that, that's a whole other conversation. It's LSAT's a bit <laughs> of a mess. Um, as far as the schools, I, I think that there's a real benefit to undergraduate, I think undergraduate institutions do their students a real disservice by not mandating a variety of courses. Uh, I, I went to Butler University in Indianapolis, we had mandated curriculum, and it forced me to take classes like the environmental history of the United States that I thought, you know, it's the only thing that fit in my schedule. It was fantastic, a whole different view on history I had no, I had never encountered before. Uh, and it shaped the way that I view things. And I think that's so crucial of just making sure that students have have to engage with different viewpoints, engage with these different topics. Uh, I'm not a math guy, that's why I'm in law school, but it was good that I took a math class, uh, just things like that. And I think, so undergraduate schools do their students a disservice by not mandating that. And then when they come to law school, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would claim that the professors are necessarily taking advantage of the, the ignorance. Cause I think every law, if you wanna be a lawyer, you talk like you know everything. And so I think it's, natural for professors to listen to students and think, oh, well, they're equally knowledgeable about the scope of American history as I am. I can proceed from here. Hmm. And that's not the case. I think there's a lot right. of people who don't know necessarily the history of the founding, uh, the history of the Constitution, all these things that are very important when talking about constitutional law and talking about the Supreme Court or the federal judiciary, now that originalism is the dominant interpret uh, interpretive method, these aspects of history are incredibly important. And so students who lack that knowledge are at a real disadvantage. So I don't know if it's taking advantage um, as much as it is them just not recognizing or um, yeah, them just kind of assuming that everybody has that base right. of knowledge, even though they don't. So there is a strong assumption that everyone is kind of on the same level coming into that yeah, program. I think so. Okay. All right, good, good to know. Now you mentioned originalism and I've talked about this in our last episode um, with Adam White just talking about um, the federal judiciary system and, and, and SCOTUS and kind of having that conversation. <clears throat> How many, I mean, from my understanding, most universities still do not, this is still kind of a new, new contemporary concept apparently, um, which is in my opinion, a little ironic, um, but it, most law schools do not teach originalism or even offer a class on it, right? That's, is that still the case? Uh, I, I believe at a lot of law schools, it's very limited. Georgetown is, we're fortunate that um, we have a couple of professors, notably Randy Barnett, um, who taught me con law, and I believe taught Adam White con law as well. So I think we have a shared source yeah. there. Uh, but Randy Barnett, he has a center for the constitution, which really um, engages with originalist critiques and advocacy in, in the scholarly world. Uh, so we, and we have a very robust FedSoc chapter, Federalist Society chapter. So we're in a pretty good place at Georgetown, but when I go and I engage with my peers at other top 14 schools, I've, I've been surprised where a lot of times the knowledge gap is as vast as it is. Um, especially even schools that are ranked much higher than Georgetown, there's sometimes where I have a, a much deeper knowledge just because of the access to the scholars. Um, 
Hmm. And so I've been fortunate in that regard. I also did my 1L. Uh, we can get into this a little bit if you're interested. Georgetown has kind of a separate curriculum for one of the sections. They divide, it, they divide the first year students into seven sections. So you're taking classes with all the same people. Hmm. You can opt into one section called Curriculum B that is based off of the critical legal studies movement. And as part of that Curriculum B, all of the students in that section have to take a class on legal theory. And originalism is one of those theories. When you're taking constitutional law, they engage with the theory a little bit more. So even outside of the Center for the Constitution and Federalist Society, uh, I did that curriculum B and was fortunate to get some exposure to originalism that I don't think other students necessarily got. Right. And I think I heard of this program. Don't they also pair it with all the other critical theories, um, such as, you know, critical race theory and these as well, kind of like, but is it all together or do you get to opt into which ones you want to take? So it's all, it, they kind of combine certain classes in, in, in a way so that then you have the, the credit space to take a three credit seminar on just legal theory that they call legal justice. Okay. And so each okay. week there is, you're reading about one discrete theory. So critical okay. race theory has its, week, its own week. Uh, feminist theory has its own week. Originalism has its own week as well. And so you're talking about that. And I, I found that really important and eye-opening for me as somebody who's interested in constitutional law especially right. just kind of having knowledge of all of that but again that's that's very rare in law schools um, or it was at least until uh, I think there's a push now to require a lot more kind of critical legal studies in law school curriculum across the country mm -hmm. coming from the ABA so well I that okay. might have actually just passed uh, so this could just be becoming the norm at least for the critical legal studies aspect right. but yeah I think law schools writ large could do a lot more to teach originalism and make sure people understand the dominant way that the constitution is being interpreted across this country. Yeah, I mean, do you think is, so if I ask you the question of kind of what curriculum do you think is seriously lacking on in law schools right now? Is originalism your answer? Or do you have some other, some other ideas on that as well? I think originalism, I would say yes. Originalism is probably the number one and especially from the perspective of non-critical take on originalism. Mm -hmm. I think there's probably no shortage of law professors who will teach originalism. And by that, they mean say, Scalia is doing this. We know what he's really doing. It's all politics, move along. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think that there's, there's probably, again, no shortage of that kind of commentary throughout law schools. Uh, the, the real issue is there's not enough teaching of originalist methods, the different strains of originalism, mm. there are a whole lot of debates going on within originalism, which yeah. I would argue is evidence that it's an actual theory, it's not politics, um, because people are fighting over the best way to move forward with these things. Oftentimes mm. they're fighting even though they would come to the same outcome, which shows that right. people take this seriously. And I think that's a really rich field for discussion. Right. And you have um, a real a, a dearth of academics who will talk about it, or at least in a, a dearth of schools who will hire academics. There are certain right. schools who seem to have, uh, who, who are willing to hire and promote originalist or even just conservative uh, academics. And I, I would say those schools are doing really well right now and are kind of on the rise because they're getting a lot of this young talent who are engaged mm -hmm. in really interesting research, while some of these higher ranked schools that seemingly won't hire originalists anymore, uh, they, they might be suffering a little bit right now. I think that's a really good point is the balance issue, right? So you mentioned um, balance of professors, conservative professors. I'm curious what your experience has been with 
the neutrality of your professors and and in, in their teaching and what your sense was um, with regards to having conservatives and liberals and, and them trying to balance that as much as possible in the classroom. Um, also curious what your experience is with how many actually encourage this kind of open discourse and debate, but then also what the balance is with your fellow students, right? How many of your fellow law students um, actually one want to speak up um at, on both sides and and two um how, how do you feel like you were kind of just singled out a lot of times in your class or were there other people to kind of jump up and defend your positions so uh, in that curriculum b that i was in in that section mm -hmm. there were about 118 people i believe i was the only yeah three years later i think it's safe to say i was the only conservative out of 118 Oof. so yeah, yeah, and, and I had a, a Republican elephant sticker on my water bottle that was on my desk every day. So everybody knew uh, between that and me defending Citizens United, I didn't leave too much to the imagination. So I, it, the balance was not there. And I think 1L, the 1L professors especially, uh, because they know students have to be there, they don't, they have to take all these classes, really attempted to play devil's advocate a decent amount. And, I had a couple of professors actually at the end of the year talk to me and say, hey, how can I get more conservative students to speak up in class? And I said, mm -hmm. well, one, it was just me. So I spoke, I spoke up, uh, but there's not much more you can do there. Uh, and two, I, I commended them when they had done a good job of at least pushing back against uh, my fellow classmates. But then you get beyond that and we're mm -hmm. back to the kind of self-selection I was talking about in 2L and 3L when you can take those classes there's not much of an incentive in a lot of these courses because it's, you know, a lot of the, the bias is baked into the topic or the framing of the syllabus. Students have already opted into that because they've read the course description and they know what they're getting. So yeah. there's not necessarily going to be a lot of pushback. Uh, I've, right. And granted, the classes that I've taken that are focused more on originalism um, or I'm taking a class now on conservative jurisprudence that's taught by a, an avowed Marxist who is willing to push back and really, really engage with students in a meaningful way that I find fascinating. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, yeah, it, it really varies by the teacher, but I think that, mm -hmm. that is, that's been an issue. Um, I've never, I don't think I've ever been necessarily called on specifically of Luke, offer us this interpretation. I know some students have, uh, if I had been, I would be happy to speak up. Um, a lot of the times if, if there was just sniping going on and it was kind of, Usually it's kind of mainstream left versus the, the far left now where those, those two strains are fighting, the students on either side of that divide are kind of fighting uh, in a classroom discussion. A lot of times I just sit back and think, you know, it's not my job to make sure I'm interjecting and making sure that the, right. the conservative viewpoint is heard. I'll do it if I feel really passionate. Um, but yeah, I, I think it really depends on the professor and depends on kind of the, the class structure and all that stuff. When you would present conservative arguments in class, what was the reception like with, with your fellow students? Um, do you feel that they actually like gained something from it? Was there, do you think there's some sort of disservice? I mean, obviously with students not hearing these alternative viewpoints in classrooms? So my 1L class, my 1L year, usually I would say my piece and then everybody would ignore me and act like I hadn't spoken. It was a, it was a very interesting. So they wouldn't even respond to your comment. No, no, no. It, it was fascinating where I kind Moving of on now. On yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just, yeah. next question, the, the very next person would just kind of say their own thing and nobody wanted to engage with it because it was just, well, it's just Luke over there. It's one person, who cares? Hmm. Um, every once in a while, some students would come up and say, hey, thank you for speaking out. Really appreciated it. Um, just to add to, add to the, intellectual diversity going on. Hmm. So 
that's that, and so that was one reaction occasionally too uh, you know i'll say something like originalism says this i think this is really beneficial or even if i disagree with that outcome that's what i think the constitution says and so we got to follow that um occasionally there'd be people who would raise their hand and say well you know originalism is just racism in disguise and kind of in wow. a veiled way attacking my character through that lens through that avenue um wow. which i would just sit there and okay um not, not much i can do about it yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think when I was speaking out a lot of the time, it just felt like I needed to do something to demonstrate that. When they would say, when they would say, sorry, when they would they yeah, say yeah. originalism was just racism veiled. I mean, did you ever try to, did you ask them how they, how it's, um, how originalism is racism? Because I would have loved to hear them explain that. Um, yeah, in the 1L classes, just especially when we went to Zoom because of COVID, it was really difficult to ever have kind of a back and forth. It was a lot yeah, of teacher okay. calls one person at a time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think a lot of it goes down to, you know, there were only white male landowners could vote on the Constitution for, for years. So it's illegitimate that way. Um, yeah. I think there's a real misunderstanding of, of originalism as focused solely on the founding and ignoring the reconstruction era amendments that kind of revitalized the whole document. Yeah, but even the first, yeah, I mean, even the first 10 amendments, I'd love to see which one of those is written in such a way that it's racist. Um. No. I mean, I, I, a lot of the times, I don't think that these are necessarily well thought out critiques. It's kind of just, you know, combine buzzwords, yeah. combine buzzwords, and then say something bad. And then that way you can just invalidate anything I have to say because it's, you know, well, Luke just likes originalism and that's racist, so he's racist. And so therefore nothing he says is worth engaging, right. which I think is a classic, um, a classic form of attack that I've seen throughout law school is, well, we don't need to engage with it because that comes from a bad place and you're bad. And therefore I went because I'm not, I'm not engaged, yeah. you're not even on the board. So yeah. I think that, yeah, that was, it was always tough and, you know, I, fortunately, I think having time again before law school where I was really comfortable with myself, comfortable with who I was, where I was going, I was able to weather that a lot better than I think some other people would. Uh, and I wasn't I wasn't afraid of, of people saying these things about me because, you know, what do I care about what my classmates, people who don't really know me, what do I care about their their opinion yeah. based on me just advocating pretty mainstream ideas and views? Yeah. And you 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 had students, you said, come up to you and thanked you for in improving the intellectual diversity of the, the, the conversation in the classroom. I mean, so clearly there's some desire, regardless of whether they agree with you or not, to hear alternative ideas. And so I think it, it does a huge disservice. I mean, look, these are, again, future uh, litigators, future attorneys, future um, judges. I mean, it's this is the time when you're supposed to be kind of exploring all of these ideas and the foundations and everything so that when you actually do start working you have something to build off of um <clears throat> so that i i mean i i think there is a hunger for it from a lot of students who are just afraid to speak up and we see that a lot in undergrad um and it it worries me because you know everyone says oh okay what what happens on campus doesn't stay on campus and i say this all the time obviously it's going to um seep out into everyday society and everything that you're seeing with with kind of these protests and cancel culture and censorship that's all going to eventually seep out and we've seen it in um, various um, institutes in society but i think people forget that it also seeps out into grad programs and into law schools and this is you know this is going to be in all of the law schools where students are just taking these 
these kind of immature comments like, oh, that's just racist. We don't have to listen to you or keeping their heads down in that complacency that we see in undergrad. They're, they're taking that to the next level in law school and medical school and other professional programs. <clears throat> so that is very disconcerting. Um, I want to move on a little bit because you're involved in a few different clubs on campus. And I just want to get your thoughts on how influential um, are these clubs on campus? Uh, because when we see, a lot of times when we see incidents uh, in law schools and on under, in undergrad campuses, they um, they are usually have something to do with a club trying to bring a speaker on campus um, and then another club protesting it. And then, so this is where the students tend to be most active and outspoken is oftentimes in within their like kind of safe space of their little clubs and organizations. Um, and I'm kind of curious, you know, in law school, especially at Georgetown, what, what has been in your experience? Um, we saw with the Ela Shapiro thing, you can feel free to talk about that example with how influential this like woke mob is through their clubs and organizations as, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in my 1L year, there was kind of a formative experience for, I think a lot of my friends and I have talked about this. There was the acting secretary for Homeland Security who came to speak to a symposium that the school hosts every year on international security and things like that. Uh, and a bunch of students and even professors signed on to a letter urging the school to disinvite him because of because President Trump was putting kids in cages, um, supposedly. So there is a whole kind of coordinated effort to protest that event. And then people and students and speakers got into the event, were sitting there and stood up and were yelling at him for, I believe, seven to eight minutes straight and then forced him. He basically just said, OK, thank you. I'm leaving. And he, he left wow. the school. Uh, claimed that they, the school investigated um, and really kind of twiddled their thumbs, didn't want to take any action, convened a whole panel to, to figure out, should there be uh, repercussions for any students who are involved? How should they handle all of this? Uh, it, it really showed me, I, I, you know, I'm a 1L sitting there, I'm thinking, really, this is a question? They just shouted down a speaker who was being hosted for an event. I don't care what he's doing. Uh, you know, you protest outside the event. You say, I don't like this, send that message, yeah. and that's it. They get to have their speaker. You know, they get to host it. Don't go if you don't want to go, but have your voice be heard beforehand. And so it just kind of, it blew my mind that that was how the, the administration was going to handle it. And from then on, it's, in my opinion, kind of been a, a continual stream of bending to the woke mob whenever there's a complaint, I think. I, I, yeah, it, it, I, with the Ilya Shapiro situation kind of being the most recent one, uh, you have the the dean of the school coming out immediately with a what I think is the worst case reading of uh, of the tweets that Ilya Shapiro sent. I'm endorsing that view, which I think is uh, irresponsible and just created a really hostile involved environment on campus for conservatives. Uh, in the aftermath of that, they were kicking uh, different group me's or group chats for the 1L classes. They were kicking conservatives out of the group me's. I wow. had friends who were kicked out of other clubs simply for saying, hey, here's I think what Ilya was getting at. Um, very, very kindly just saying, hey, I think this is what he was trying to get at, but I understand there's anger. They still kicked them out of clubs. Uh, it just became very toxic at the beginning of the year. And hmm. it's it's been kind of continual. Uh, for, um, well, so the, the Federalist Society, despite what some people on the left claim, is not an advocacy organization. And right. so for a long time, uh, that was the only club that, I mean, granted, there are plen I have plenty of, of liberal and libertarian friends in Federalist Society. Um, but you had a lot of conservatives in there as well because they hosted interesting thinkers and debates who were thinking we want to have a club or organization to when these things happen, mm -hmm. we can kind of coordinate and go to the dean and create a bit of a counter pressure so we can prevent 
kind of craziness from going unchecked. So that was the reason behind founding the Conservative and Libertarian Student Association, where the only chapter was founded, I think, in uh, the spring of 2020. And it was through that that we were able to push back against Ilya Shapiro, uh, that we were able to push back against some of the, the school going virtual during COVID, uh, a lot of these different things. It, it ended up being a real success. Uh, well, I guess we'll have to see uh, how things come down with Ilya Shapiro. But yeah. I, I think we all thought that it was very successful and just getting the school to hear our concerns and not take it for granted that, okay, we can give in to whatever the woke mob demands and the conservative libertarian students that, you know what, they'll, they'll just sit and take it. You know, they're, they're never yeah. going to create a fuss. Um, unfortunately, it, it's a sad fact that I think you have to create a bit of a fuss and show that you won't be walked all over. Otherwise, mm -hmm. the school administration is just going to do whatever they can to sweep things under the rug, give in to the loudest voice, and move along. And that's that's been really disappointing to see, um, but at the same time gratifying to see the support that Kalsa has gotten um, and kind of some of the, the effects that we've been able to bring about. Yeah, I mean, I think this has always kind of been the case, especially in the United States, um, uh, is the squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? So, you know, I think a lot of conservative and libertarian students do, again, kind of get complacent and they think, you know, okay, we're just going to we're going to get the grades. We'll speak up when needed, but we're not going to go out and like full on protests or, or really push the administration to make a huge change here. Um, but I think a lot of the, I mean, obviously the woke mob, we call it a mob for a reason because they do love to do that, that tactic. They love to put pressure on administrators and, and kind of scream at them and call them racist and, um, and don't really think it's necessary to come up with a, a real argument. They just kind of use those tactics, those aggressive tactics to get their voices heard. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, this is a really good example of how you can actually get your voice heard, still kind of like maintain your integrity and <laughs> your, your, and use tactful ways and resources to reach out to the administration and actually see results. Um, I'd be curious if this has been as, as successful um, on other campuses or more hostile campuses as well. I think being in the DC area is helpful in that <clears throat> even if you don't have a lot of on-campus allies um, through professors or administrators. There's a lot of kind of off-campus kind of external pressure on the university that's directly seen and, and visible to the university in DC. So that's just something that I think it has probably has been helpful. I'm curious if, if you think it has been or not. Um, but I'm also curious kind of what are some of, aside from the Ilya Shapiro incident um, and the one that you just, the other example that you just mentioned, what is uh what are some of the most common debates like are there specific topics that are just untouchable these days without turning into like a very heated like crazy debate or is everything kind of open for discussion on on in, on campus with regards to whether it be a club event or you know discussion in a classroom because this is something i think we're we're not really sure on is it like for example like abortion like is this is this completely off limits is anyone even willing to have this discussion anymore um especially in law school considering this is obviously going to be a big one on the docket this year. So curious what your thoughts are on that as well. Yeah, I so abortion, I think, is not necessarily off limits, but you just have pretty much everybody who wants to speak out on it is pro-choice and anybody who's pro-life is uh, just sits there silently and thinks, OK, we're just I'm not going to I'm not going to engage in this in this conversation in the middle of class um, because tensions just run high. I think everybody, well, at least pro-lifers, um, then to just re recognize it's not worth the effort, you know, continue to advocacy outside of the classroom, not going to change minds in that uh, mm -hmm. necessarily in that venue. So I think abortion is actually one where I've heard a little bit more discussion of, um, but it's really, it's anything related to 
race, anything related to gender identity and the politics around that, anything that's maybe critical of the, the mainstream media or mainstream narratives on those topics, um, pushing back on, on claims of, well, that's systemically racist. Well, uh, questioning even, well, what does that mean? What, what, when you say that, what is that actually meaning? Those conversations don't happen. Everything is taken as, as a given. Um, and then hmm. people just say things and we accept it and move on from that being kind of the, people just accept that as the basis for the conversation. Which is surprising because um, language is so important in the legal field, right? Like if you switch yeah. an and to an or, it completely changes the meaning legally for a lot of things. And so like, you'd, you'd be surprised that someone wouldn't want to define what systemic racism actually is. Right, but you know that you don't want to be uh, you don't want to be labeled as a kind of a problematic person. I think that's that's the mm. big fear for a lot of people, um, and it, it, that's I think has a real chilling effect on speech, uh, especially if professors won't push back when people maybe label other students or other mainstream ideas as problematic. If the professors don't do that, the the conversation just spirals out of control real quickly. So that's been really disappointing to me as a, a part of law school is you have these biggest, kind of the biggest cultural discussions. Yeah. But even the discussions that are taking place on cable news, like they aren't afraid to kind of dive into that and you can host yeah. opposing viewpoints. They're having those conversations, but in the law school classroom, it's really, it's off limits or people just are, you know, people are not willing to, it, the chilling effect is really in existence right. there. Which I've again, had, it, had, yeah. I was just gonna say, again, it's very surprising considering a lot of these have to do with like current legal concerns and lawsuits, uh, you know, at the federal level. So yeah. that is, that is. I, I remember from, uh, there was, during my 1L constitutional law class, we were already in COVID at that point. So we were on virtual on Zoom and we had a class where they were talking about how Congress was going to be passing uh, specific relief for, I think, minority owned businesses. I have nothing wrong with that policy. But I asked the professor, I said, we, we've talked about affirmative action and things like that, where, you know, you, you have to be race neutral. How, how does that not then implicate policies where you're saying I'm only giving funding to like minority owned businesses? What, what is the constitutional, how does, how do we square these two things? Which was an earnest question. I just wanted to know, is that a different part of equal protection? How do we get, how, how do we get around that? Um, and the professor gave me an answer. It wasn't, it was, I think a lot of like, well, you know, I'll look into that more. We can talk more about it. Um, and then the very next person who raised their hand and, and started talking said, well, you know, I just have to disagree with what Luke is advocating for here. Um, and then the next person too said, well, yeah, Luke's point and what he's advocating for, the assumption being, or the implication being uh, that I had been advocating for stopping business relief for minority owned businesses, even though that's not at all what I had said. And I just muted myself and sat back um, and I had some classmates actually who, who on Zoom started sending me messages saying, hey, I, I'm sorry, this is ridiculous. I don't know what they're doing. I thought, you know. So yeah, that, that's fascinating. But, so you, just by asking a question to clarify something, um, framing it in such an innocent way, they're still calling you an advocate. So yeah, I think- because I, I think that there is for a lot of, again, I, I, I don't ever want to pay with too broad a, a brush, but I think there is a, a mindset in a lot of students where, it, you know, you only ask questions out of wanting to further your point and further your goal, not out of pure curiosity. I think that's been a real- Yeah, but it's, I think it also comes from this, like you don't question the yeah. truth, you know, you don't question this because this is like the existing truth. This is the dogma that everyone prescribes to. So therefore it's like, if right. you question it, then something's wrong. Yeah, um, we all like these programs. Why would we question whether it's constitional? Right. Uh, you know, if, it, if we like it, it's constitutional and therefore we're good. 
Um, and like I said, I, I still don't have a good answer. You know, I, I, if I thought about it, went through my notes from con law, I could probably figure it out. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't get a good answer for it. It should be a pretty basic question, but it's 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 always been interesting too. And you know, I, I ask these questions or I'll, I'll raise a point in class. Like I mentioned, I have classmates who will come up to me and say, "Hey, thanks for talking in class." Or even with um, things like the Ilya Shapiro situation, I have friends who are nominally liberal, strong Democratic voters, come up mm -hmm. and say, "Hey, you know, I, I agree with you. Thank you, thank you for you know standing, kind of putting your voice out there." And then I'll say, "Oh, well, you know, did you?" did you support, did you sign on to this letter or whatever? And say, well, well, yeah, but I, I just didn't know what I was doing at that time. I think, okay, well, <laughs> this, is, this is, you know, it, it's, you know, it's all it takes for evil or I don't even know if evil in this case, but any, for anything yeah. like that to triumph is to do nothing and just let it all pass. Uh, right. Which is something where, especially this last year of law school, I've been determined where if stuff is going on, I wanna make sure I'm standing up. And I would, I just encourage law students, students, undergrad, um, really to do it because that's if you if you don't stand up and, and push back yeah. uh, like I said if you this squeaky wheel gets the grease if so if you're mm -hmm. not out there um standing athwart pushing back uh you're, we're just not going to get any wins and it's going to continue to to move in a direction that's really harmful for I think our country for the schools yeah. themselves it's not it, it's not going to work for anybody no I think that's really great advice um to give to students I mean we talk we talk to undergrads all the time about this but you know, a lot of folks don't think this is happening in law school because when we, when, for those of us who have not gone to law school, which is a huge, obviously, swath of the country, um, you know, we think about it based on what we've seen in movies or based on like the, the few lawyers that we know, we kind of take their personality and apply it to the law school. Um, and we think, okay, look, these guys talk forever. They're obviously all opinionated. Um, they, they're very outspoken. And so, it's like the assumption is that law school must just be a bunch of like opinion, opinionated people just going at it and like just trying to discover truth and like to have this like fantastical dialectic. And then, but that's not what's happening. We're seeing similar things happening that we're seeing elsewhere, which is people are just keeping their heads down and they are not willing to speak up on this because they fear so much the consequences of it. Um, and that, yeah, I've, I've often, I've told my friends even at law school or my parents who've said, oh, my, wow, you must be having debates all the time. Yeah. Said, you know, I have more substantive, interesting conversations uh, over drinks with, when I was working on the Hill, over drinks with staffers from Democratic offices. Those conversations were more illuminating than most of what I'm learning <laughs> in a law school classroom. Because at least there, you know, you're, you're having opinions flying, really engaging in a, a substantive right. conversation. And that's pretty rare in law school, which is a real disappointment, especially considering the price tag. That is really disappointing because I feel like that's like the main reason I would want to go is to just like debate people all the time, right? That that sounds like a lot of fun. But um, I'm curious, based on the composition of your classes, like how many students do you actually think will be using their degrees to practice law? Like, do you think there's like a, a majority at all that's just like, oh, let's get my law degree because I want to run for office, right? I get my law degree because um, you know, I, I want to do like, I'll be a professor or I, I'm kind of curious, what is, is it everyone planning to actually practice law? I think at Georgetown, I think Georgetown is known for one, it's the largest school, it's in DC, mm -hmm. the highest ranked law school in DC. So you're going to attract a lot of people who want to do public interest work. Okay. Uh, so yeah. they're kind they're using the law degree, but they're, they're not working at a firm. They're working for a nonprofit. They're working in the government. They're doing work like that. So, okay be using the degree um I, I would guess there's probably maybe about 20 again just based on my assumptions 20 25 percent i wouldn't be surprised to end up doing things like running for office working in something that doesn't require the degree um probably 
another 20, 25% of that will do public interest work or stuff like that. And then about half will do normal lawyering at, at a firm or, or kind of doing counsel work, things like that. So it's, it's a real split at Georgetown, more so than I think you go to, to other law schools that are known for everybody here is either going to go clerk and then go to a law firm in New York, or they're just going straight to a law firm in New York. Uh, so Georgetown's a little bit different, but I think a lot of schools, um, it just, it really does vary. Hmm. No, that, that makes sense. That makes sense in the, the, the DC area. Um, I'm kind of also curious, um, in your, based on like your peers, what, what's the level of faith that you have in their, their ability to practice law or even judicate in the future? I'm just kind of like, um, do you, based on the conversations and the debates that you've had and the interactions that you've had, do you see these, these people actually like growing professionally and, and being successful? And, and I'm curious what the reason why, or if there's something they should change or, or. Yeah, I, there, I've met some really brilliant, fascinating people who really mm -hmm. think, who think deeply and thoughtfully about the law. Uh, even people who disagree with me who are brilliant and have great conversations. And I think, wow, you're going to go out and just do fantastic things. But then I, I do see things like what, what the woke mob at the school has done, the um, illiberal principles at work there, the distaste for anybody with opposing viewpoints, not wanting to engage in anything that might be a difficult conversation. And I get really worried. Uh, you know, I'm not necessarily very interested in working at a firm, but if I was running a law firm, I'd be concerned about, okay, these are, these are people who don't want to have hard conversations that uh, don't seem to be very open to opposing viewpoints or working through things. How is that going to translate to the practice of law? Right. Uh, so I think if I was a hiring per agent, I would have questions about that. Mm -hmm. um, from my end, I worry about that mindset eventually getting into the government and getting into the federal judiciary or even the state level judiciary. Yeah. So the, I have a lot of concerns about that. So it, it, it's a mix. It, it's some real brilliant people who I've been very impressed by and think this is exactly what law sh school should be, the kind of person law school should be creating and sending out into the world. And then there's a lot of stuff going on where you think, oh my gosh, how one, how are, how are these people functioning adults? Uh, and then also, uh, heaven help us, uh, if, if this gets into our institutions the way that I think the mob is hoping that it will. Yeah, the, the group of students that you're questioning how they're functioning adults, how, do you ever also ask like, how the heck did you get into this law school? <laughs> like, I, that's, a, I, that's an even more obvious question because you're at a top tier school and I just, I mean, how, how, do, these, how do these folks get in? No, I, I wish I knew, although I think spending some time on Capitol Hill, spending some time working in the government, there's a lot of times you meet people and think, how on earth did you, how, how did you get here? How did, how did you get anywhere yeah. in life? And, and yet you're, you're here. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's because there's between the LSAT, all sorts of things, people have varied backgrounds, you know, you can, you can get to law school. And then I think it's, you know, I, I really think at that point, it's on the law school, the onus is on them to train, train you up, make you a lawyer, make you somebody who can really engage in these things. And that's where there's a, a real deficit uh, yeah. and kind of the, the law schools, I don't think are upholding their end of the bargain. They aren't giving yeah. you what you're paying for. Um, and then they certainly, I don't think they aren't giving society uh, what they claim to be giving them. And that's, that's very scary. Um, and I guess, so with all the debates that you've had on campus uh, in law school and all, all the discussions that you've had, is there at least some recognition amongst your peers, even the ones who like would just call you racist um, because you believe in originalism. Um, are, it's, 
is there some recognition that like objectivism is important and that neutrality is important in, in when interpreting the law or is that not even like being considered at all anymore? I think it's considered, but the scary thing is that I think it has to be, it's a debate whether it's considered. Huh. Uh, I think so it's a debate in itself. <laughs> it's absolutely a debate <laughs> in itself, which is probably the most concerning thing uh, where I've had, you know, conversations with a friend about an interpretation of a statute or a pending Supreme Court case. And I'll say, well, you know, granted, I get there because of originalist means that's my preferred mm -hmm. interpretive method. But then outside of that, you know, objectively, here's what the law says, here's what it does, should apply it neutrally. And, and you run into policy arguments really quickly. And it, mm -hmm. it's been interesting where then that's a debate of, well, I understand that's what you want to do, but you can't do it under this. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. That, that's what I want to do. Um, and it, I still don't really have a great argument outside of, well, you can't do that. But if somebody says, well, I just want to do it and I have no restraint and no constraints on me. So if I was a judge, I would do it. Wow. I think that's, that's terrifying. That's pretty scary. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that so it, it's, hmm. there is an acknowledgement that that, I think now it, that's the sad thing is that this objectivism, objectivism is now not seen as something covers everything. It's just that debated away or be seen as an alternative viewpoint that I can askew if I don't like where that would come out. Uh, and that's very scary. Oh, my. So you mentioned a couple pieces of advice earlier for, for students who are in law school to speak up and, and stand strong and actually try to participate and create these, these spaces for these debates. Um, <clears throat> is there any advice you'd give to students in undergrad or who are folks who are working right now in the field that are considering law school? Um, what should they be looking for um, that they can get like the best experience, but also the best education? Because obviously we mentioned before, prestige is not the end all be all. I mean, you look at what happened at Yale Law School, is that really an environment that you want to go uh, kind of explore constitutional law with? You know, for students who are looking to actually use their law degree to adjudicate and be objective and be neutral and in interpreting the law, um, what would you kind of recommend how they prepare for it? some advice in, in looking forward or while they're on campus and, and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would recommend, as I mentioned earlier, spending some time out in the real world doing the real work. A lot of people will do paralegal work, uh, which I think is a fine path. I did something outside of the law and found a lot of benefit to that, uh, to kind of build up a good life for yourself. And then second guess, do I, do I need to go to law school? Do I want to go to law school? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that when you go to, you have a real view of what the world is like outside of the legal world. I think that's really helpful. Uh, beyond that, I think during that time, really getting to know yourself and what you believe, reading up on different viewpoints, so that if you or if and when you go to law school, you come in with a base of knowledge and a pretty firm view of who you are, so you feel confident when you're speaking out in class. I think that's really key. As far as finding a law school that works for you, I think you apply broadly based on what you know, doing some visits, and then you go to the admitted students weekend if you can. And that's where when you're speaking with students, they'll usually have an organization fair. Go find the members of the American Constitution Society and ask them hard questions. Find members of the Federalist Society, ask them hard questions. Ask about uh, ideological diversity. Ask about recent free speech controversies and how they were resolved. Uh, ask about a time that somebody spoke out in class with a heterodox opinion and how that was handled. Yeah. Ask those questions because especially if you're just asking kind of randos at, a, at an org fair, that's not gonna impact mm -hmm. your, your, I mean, you're already in if, if you're at an admitted students weekend. 
Uh, and so that's when it really is a job interview for the school. Ask hard questions and get yeah. those answers because that's your last chance to do it before you get to the school. And I think that will really illuminate it. Uh, kind of that'll you'll get a good feel for what the school culture is and whether that's going to be a good fit for you. And even if you end up going somewhere where you have some questions about, at least you're going in clear-eyed and you know what it's going to take on your end to, to push back um, and make sure that you can make an impact on that campus. Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent point is asking the hard questions to once you once you're in, especially. Um, yeah. And but also giving yourself putting yourself in the position, that's that's a good way to put it. Put yourself in a position where you're second guessing whether you need to go to law school or not. I think that's a knowing that you're you're kind of on, on a good path and, and wondering if, it, if it, do you need more or, you know, exactly. that's what I and always hear that. $200,000 and it's, it's crazy how easily we're just willing to say, yeah, just, you know, throw another 200 so much money on the tab and move forward. I think that's it's really I, good to, to interrogate that on the front end instead yeah, of three when you're graduating and thinking, wait, why did I do this? Never, exactly. never mind. Just cancel it all. Exactly. No, that's why everyone is so concerned right now looking at law schools and everything we're seeing in the news. I mean, you're like, this is such an expensive program that these these students are paying for, or at least if they're getting financial aid, then the federal government's paying for it. And we're talking about student loan options and all this stuff. So it's it's something that really should be taken with a lot of weight when you're when you're making this consideration. It shouldn't be like, oh, I'm just flippantly going to go to law school and, you know, <laughs> and we'll figure it out from there. Um, Absolutely. Well, well, thank you so much, Luke. That that was really wonderful. Um, we'll go ahead and end it here, but thanks for all the advice for those who are kind of looking into potentially going to law school. Uh, everyone, this is Well Said. It's a bi-weekly live show where I interview policy experts and commentators, academics, students, and activists on issues covering higher education, free speech, and other related topics in American culture and policy. You can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube. Also, you can check us out on any podcast uh, app that you might have, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. You can download us and listen anytime. Give us a five-star rating if you like what you heard today. I'm Sharice Trump, and Luke, that was Well Said. Thank you.